Well, for the last few weeks, if you've been with us here at Rio, you know that we've been talking about the worthiness of God and looking at it primarily as we see it in the book of Revelation. And we started out by spending two weeks taking a really, really detailed look at this really important scene that happens in Revelation 4 and 5, and in which John, through his poetry, takes us up into the throne room of heaven. And then through his poetry, he shows us our God, and he shows us the throne of our God, and he shows us also, very significantly, what's in the right hand of our God. It's a scroll sealed up with seven seals written on both sides. And we developed all of that and said, what that is, is the battle plan of God by which he will bring judgment and deliverance and inheritance to his people. And we saw also in week two how Jesus Christ answered the call that went out throughout all of heaven and all of earth and even under the earth, the realm of the dead itself, which was who is worthy to take the scroll and break the seals? Who is worthy to walk up to the Lord God himself seated on the cosmic throne of the universe to receive from him that battle plan and then to open it up seal by seal to unfurl it, to execute it, which is what, by the way, the rest of the book is all about. And we saw that no one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth, save the Lord Christ, the true Joshua himself was worthy. Now, why do I call him the true Joshua? Because that's his name. His name is Joshua. We spent a bunch of time last week developing the idea that, you know, we call him Jesus because Greek was the common language of the day, and the New Testament is written in Greek. It transcends all of the other languages. No matter what language you spoke, you spoke and read Greek, and so the New Testament was written in Greek. But the native tongue of Christ is not Greek. Jesus is the Greek version of the name Joshua. And that became really significant last week because last week it's kind of like we all got in a big air balloon and went up like 30,000 feet and took a lot of hits of oxygen, didn't we? Because it was pretty intense. This has been heavy material. It's not going to get any lighter this morning, I will tell you that. And we look down from that vantage point upon the whole of the book, not just one scene. And what we recognized is a pattern, and it's a familiar pattern. It comes right out of the Old Testament. It comes right out of the Old Testament story of Joshua and his signature battle against the wicked city of Jericho. We saw the pattern is the same. I mean, both the book of Revelation and that story start the same way with the unexpected appearance of Jesus who appears brandishing a sword. John and Joshua then do the same thing. They fall as if dead before Christ and both then receive visions of holy wars against wicked cities that are walled up against God and the people of God into which two witnesses or two spies are sent and placed under death sentences and containing, and again, this is not a friendly word, it's not a word I use around the house, but it is the word in both the Joshua story of the Old Testament and the Joshua story, which is the book of Revelation in the New, the cities in both cases contain a whore, and in both cases the whore is identified by the color of scarlet, and they both take place in what I call telescoping sevens. Sevens upon sevens upon sevens. Joshua takes the people of Israel and he marches around the great city of Jericho once a day, seven days. On the seventh day, he marches around it seven times. At the end of the seventh time, the seven trumpets blast. At the blast of the seventh trumpet, what happens? The people shout before the covenant, or before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the city falls. 
And Joshua says, I want you to go into the city and get Rahab, the whore, and all of her people, and I want you to bring them out, and they bring out the people of God. That's who that is. She's made a confession of faith and entrusted her whole life and family to it. They come out of the city, and the city is burned, and then there's a wedding. What happens in Revelation? Same deal. Seven seals, seven bowls, seven trumpets. When the seventh trumpet sounds, all of heaven shouts before the Ark of the Covenant and the great city falls. Stunning, isn't it? And then what does God say? Come out of her, my people. And then he burns the city to the ground. And then there's a wedding. The pattern is unmistakable. And it's precise. And what I've been saying for the last couple of weeks, and it's different, it's new to so many of you, but understand, it is not new. You can find this in the writings of the church fathers in the the 400s. They saw this pattern. What's new is what you know. That's new within the context of church history. What I've been saying all along is that this battle that is being fought in this book of Revelation by the true Joshua, who is Christ, who enters into the promised land right where Joshua brought the people of Israel into the land, is Jesus' battle against another wicked city. And it's not the city of Jericho. It's the city of Jerusalem. It's the city that crucified Christ. And I think John himself tells us as much in Revelation chapter 11, verse 8. Listen to what he says. He says, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, there it is, which mystically, the word is actually, which spiritually is what? Is Sodom and Egypt. He's saying, hey, you know this city that I'm talking about in this book of Revelation and all of this images and all of these poetries and all of this, spiritually speaking, it's like Sodom, it's like Egypt. And what happened to Sodom and Egypt? Just as an aside, God destroyed them in judgment. Stunning. But that's not all that he says. He says, in their dead bodies, these two witnesses that are sent into the city will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. And then he says something that's very particular. He says, where also their Lord was crucified. And where was that? He was crucified in Jerusalem. First century Jerusalem which was later destroyed in A.D. 70, exactly as Jesus had predicted that it would be. And that story is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, most fully in Matthew. And so every week I have said it was destroyed in A.D. 70, exactly as Jesus said it would be in Matthew chapter 24. And what I want to do today is look at Matthew chapter 24. I want to show it to you. I want to explain it to you. My prayer is that you can hang with me. It's going to take some hits of oxygen. It's long. It's complicated. Seriously. But it will benefit your soul. I want you to see what Jesus says about this temple. His battle is primarily against the temple and against what the temple stood for, which is what? Because this is what takes it out of the academic. This is what takes it out of the, you know, no, I think it's about this or I think it's... This is where it gets into my life and into your life, and in a very, I think, demanding way. The temple stood for this idea that if you obey all of God's rules and regulations and laws, then everything's fine. You're cool, you're good, you're a good person. 
And so you can have a relationship with God, you can enter into the family of God, you can be called a son or daughter of God, you get to go to the heaven of God. I don't care how you want to articulate it, you're saved by what you do. Just keep the law of God and everything's cool, everything's fine, everything's good. Why is that relevant to us today? Because that's what everyone thinks. It is absolutely contrary to the gospel of free grace that Jesus Christ came preaching and teaching and then literally suffered and died to provide for us. Utterly contrary. The gospel of free grace recognizes that God does not grade us on a curve. He never looks down from heaven upon all of sinful humanity and then looks at me or looks at you and goes, hey, you know, Tom's a little bit flawed. I mean, he has his issues. He's certainly not perfect. However... Based upon everybody else down there, I'd give him a C plus. He's in. Everything's fine. Everything's cool. Everything's good. God looks down from heaven and he judges all of humanity by his law against the standard of his own perfections. The standard is the holiness of God itself. The standard of goodness is the goodness of the Lord God who sits on the cosmic throne of the universe. And the gospel of free grace is pretty honest about the reality that by that standard, we all fail. And it recognizes also as the Lord, who is its author, recognized that to preach or to teach otherwise is to preach or teach a gospel of death. That was the gospel of the temple. That's also what it stood for. And parenthetically, that is what Jesus Christ gave his life battling against. And that transcends the academic, doesn't it? See, that's where you got to pause in a story like this and a message like this and a passage like this and go, wow, there's a battle raging, guys. And the question is, are we even aware of it? What the temple stood for, it continues on. It continues on in some of our families, in, in some of our businesses, in our schools, on our ball fields, all over our city, all over the world, our world, my world, your world, the world. The prevailing view, if you're good, based upon the standard of, you know, look around, then everything will be fine with you. Jesus gave his life to say otherwise, and we've got to pause as Christians every once in a while and ask ourselves, what am I giving? What am I sacrificing really? What risks am I taking for the battle of the hearts and souls of men and of women and children? I will tell you frankly that I think as American evangelical Christians largely, and I'm speaking just in general, okay, I think we have been lulled to sleep. We are asleep on the couch. We have been anesthetized by our pursuits of lesser things. The battlefield is set, and the temple and all that it stood for stands on one side of the battlefield, and the Lord Christ stands on the other. And the question is, where do you stand? Where do I stand? Jesus does battle with the temple. He does it in his day, and he does it in AD 70, as we'll see. But we find him, we pick up in Matthew 23, the passage just before Matthew 24, and Jesus is literally standing in the temple, and he's battling it out with the religious leaders of his day, and he is not speaking kindly to them. 
They are purveyors of a gospel of death, and he goes after them big time. When you read a passage like this, you go, my goodness, no wonder they wanted to kill him. Seriously. He pronounces eight prophetic curses upon them just in this one section. And then he wraps up his closing argument. Mind you, this is public with these words. Matthew 23, beginning in verse 31, he says, So you, he's talking to these men in this temple in that city in about A.D. 36. He says, So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. You rejected, you're just like your fathers, they rejected the gospel of God over and over and over and over again. Parenthetically, what was the judgment that came upon them? It was the destruction of their city, of their temple. There's a lot of correspondences. He says, so you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. And man, this is so politically incorrect. Listen to what he says. He says, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents. You brood of vipers, you poisonous snakes. That's not a friendly image, by the way, in the Bible. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, he says, behold, I am sending to who? I am sending to you. You men I'm standing there with face to face, eyeball to eyeball in the temple, AD 36, having this really strong conversation with. I am sending you, your men, your city, your temple, prophets and wise men and scribes. And he did read the book of Acts. Some of them you will kill and crucify like they did to Stephen like they did to Peter, who's crucified upside down. And some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city like they did to Paul, who was scourged five times, and literally his persecutors would pursue him from city to city, and he'd flee from his life. He's saying, this is what you're going to do. And they did. He says, so that upon you, you men, your city, your temple may fall All the guilt, you see, the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. And then Jesus says this, and it's an important statement. It is a statement dealing with time. He's going to give a time frame. And he gives this time frame at the beginning of this discussion about the destruction of Jerusalem, and he gives it again at the end of this discussion of the destruction of Jerusalem, and you that's how you know where it begins and ends. It's a bookend. It's a literary device. Jesus says, truly I say to you, all of these things, this judgment that I just proclaimed upon you will come upon who? This generation. How long is a generation in the Bible? It's 40 years. He says this in roughly AD 36. Jerusalem is destroyed in AD 70. The math works, doesn't it? Then if you know the end of that chapter, he laments over the destruction of the city. It doesn't make him happy. He's not a vindictive man. And then we read this, Matthew 24, verse 1. It says, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away. What's happening here is Jesus has had this discussion. He's issued his lament. And now he's leaving the temple, and and he's leaving, and he's heading east. So he's going out of the eastern gate. 
and immediately would then descend down into the Kidron Valley. It's a small valley, not a big valley. And immediately then he would begin to go up the Mount of Olives. He would pass right by where the Garden of Gethsemane is. And he would head up the Mount of Olives, which is this mount, okay? It's a very generous word. It's like a big hill that is located directly east of the Temple Mount, and it looks down upon the temple. So in his day, you would look down literally upon the temple and all of the buildings associated with it. Today, you look down on the Dome of the Rock if you've been there. So he's heading up this mountain. It says Jesus came out of the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to him to point out the temple buildings to him. So they're looking at these temple buildings as they're ascending this mount, and they're marveling over how beautiful these buildings are. When Titus, the Roman general, came to take the city of Jerusalem and they began their siege and they were going to breach the city and go into it, he gave a commandment to his soldiers. He says, do not destroy that building. It's beautiful. It's one of the wonders of the world. It's a jewel in the crown of Rome. But a greater word had spoken. They're marveling over the beauty of the building is the idea. And then look what the Lord says. This beautiful building which stands for a gospel of death. It says, and he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, don't miss this, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. You know what happened when they breached the city and they went into the city? Even though Titus had said, look, don't destroy the temple. Somehow, and we don't know how, torches were thrown into the temple, and the place went up in fire, and it was laden with gold. It was an amazing, incredible building, and the gold literally melted from the intense heat of the fire. It seeped down into the cracks and the crevices of the stones, and once the fire had subsided, the Romans literally dismantled the building stone by stone to get out the gold. The Lord knows of which He speaks. And he's not unclear. So they're hiking up the hill, you know, and the disciples are all jacked about how beautiful the building is. And Jesus is like, man, take a good look at it, boys. You see all those things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And these guys who are Jews, who were raised with this mindset, I mean, they cannot imagine a world, a life without the temple. The temple was the center of their nation. All the men of Israel three times a year were called to present themselves before God at the temple. It's the center of their economy. It's the center of their spirituality. That's where sacrifices are made. That's where they present. They, I mean, they have no category for no temple at this point. They are so stunned, they just walk up the rest of the way in in stunned silence. Jesus then seats himself at the top of the Mount of Olives. You see this, again, overlooking the very building that he has just said will be dismantled stone by stone within this generation. And they come to him with one question that raises really three different topics, and I'll identify them for you. Verse 3, it says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Let us in on this one, okay, because we're, we're trying to, you know, understand. And they say, topic number one, tell us when will these things happen? You have just told us that that temple is going to be destroyed, not one stone left upon another. When is that going to happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? So when are you going to return, Lord? And 
of the end of the age, of the end of the world. And it's clear the way they lump all these three things together that they think it's all going to happen at one time. Again, they don't have a category for no temple. So they're assuming, well, if the temple's going to be dismantled, therefore Jesus must also be returning in that moment, and that must be the end of the world. And they're not right about that. So the Lord now begins to answer their questions in order. And he starts with the destruction of the temple. Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads who? Who's he talking to? Who's he sitting with? These men, not me, not you. See to it that no one misleads you guys, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many and you will be hearing of wars and rumors of war. See to it that you're not frightened for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. The end of what? Well, what's the question? The end of the temple, the end of Jerusalem, the end of the nation. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. He's saying that all of these things will happen before the temple and the city are destroyed. And when you look at history, you realize, well, that they did. Every single one of them. There was a messianic fever in the first century. Many people claimed to be the Messiah. Many And many were led astray. Usually, they were led astray to their death. You know, there was some kind of a revolt associated with the so-called Messiah that the Romans would go in and wipe them out. That's how you knew you had a false Messiah. The Romans would kill the Messiah like they did Christ. Why do you think all the disciples gave up? They knew the pattern. The Messiah dies, can't be him. Unless he rises from the dead. See, that none of these other people did. But there was false messiah after false messiah after false messiah. There were wars, particularly among the Jews, who were dispersed throughout all the nations. Remember, they would come from every nation for Pentecost. Or not for Pentecost, but for for the uh, Passover. They were there at Pentecost from every nation. They heard them speaking in their tongues, recall? There was a lot of conflict in this period between the Jews and the Greeks and the cities that they lived in all over the world. It's documented. There was the rumor that Caligula, who was one of the Roman emperors who reigned during this time period, was coming to invade Judea. He was coming to invade Judea. He was coming to invade Judea. These people lived under the stress of that. There were four famines between A.D. 41 and 54 in Judea alone, and earthquakes upon earthquakes. It's all documented. The idea is that Jesus says these things are going to happen. It's going to happen before the destruction of the city and, well, of the temple. And then he goes on. Verse 9, he says, then they will deliver who? You guys that I'm sitting here talking to. They will deliver you to tribulation, and they will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And again, have you read the book of Acts? Because it's exactly what happened. Do you know what church history teaches about how these men were persecuted, tortured, martyred? crucified, driven through with spears. They feared no death, for they had seen the one who has defeated death. Eye to eye, and it transformed them from cowardly people who thought that the Messiah couldn't be the Messiah because, I mean, you know, he died the same way all the rest of them did. They had seen that he had defeated death. 
At that time, he says, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another for all of this persecution that will go on and did. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end, what end? Well, what's the question? Because it's all contained in one section. The end of the city, the end of the temple, the end of the Jewish nation. The one who endures to the end, he will be saved. And then the next part is very confusing to a lot of us. He says, this gospel of the kingdom, this gospel of free grace, which stands opposed to that temple, shall be preached where? In the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end, meaning of the temple of Jerusalem of the nation, then eighty seventy. We know that now will come. And I know that a lot of you read that and go, well, then that can't be referring to AD 70. This can't be referring to the destruction of the city of Jerusalem because that isn't fulfilled even to this day. Yes, it is. It absolutely is. And I think to say otherwise is to find yourself in an argument with the Bible itself. There are like maybe five verses, I can think of four, that say the gospel was preached throughout the whole world before A.D. 70. Let me read you two. Romans 1 verse 8, Paul says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed where? It's all right, you can say it. Throughout the whole world, right? I mean, Romans 10. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out where? Into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Jesus is saying these things are going to happen before the end of this city. These things are going to happen before the end of this temple. These things are going to happen before this judgment that I told these guys that's coming upon them within this generation takes place. And you can just go down the list and check them off. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world. And it was as a testimony to all the nations. And then at the end, meaning of Jerusalem, of the temple, will come and then he gives them a sign. The definitive sign. Here is how you know that it's about to happen. And it's unambiguous. He says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, well, I guess that's ambiguous. And then Matthew adds, let the reader understand. Like, thanks. What does that mean? You find this teaching in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. So when you look at what Luke records there, he records Jesus' statement this way. Luke 21, verse 20, he says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize, the word actually means no, then know that her what? That her desolation is near. And it was surrounded by armies. And then it was destroyed in AD 70 by those armies. So having told them what to look for, kind of an unambiguous sign anyway, right? I mean, you you wouldn't, like, miss that when it happened. He starts giving them advice on what to do. He says, and those who are in Judea, that's the outlying areas, you see, that's the whole area in which Jerusalem is the big walled-up city. 
He says, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Uh Uh-oh, now that's different from what everybody would do in those days. That's a different kind of wisdom. See, what would happen in those days is as the armies would sweep across the plains, you know, coming toward the great walled-up city, whatever city that might be here, it's Jerusalem, the people who lived in all their areas outside of the walls of the city would run to the city because there was protection, or so they thought, inside of the walls of the city. They figure that's the safest place to be. They'd pack up their stuff as quick as they could. They'd rush into the walls of the city for its safety. They would close the gates, and they would all ride it out together. But it creates a lot of problems, for then the population of the city swells many times over. And as you can imagine, food, well, the price goes up. When the city is surrounded and sieged, famine sets in. And Jesus is saying, that city and those walls are not going to protect you. It's going to be just like Jericho. They're coming down. Don't go there. Those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. It's a better place to be. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get things out that are in his house because you don't have time. Just go. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. Run. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days, because your journey is going to be really tough. Pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be, what? A great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Now, I want to pause there for a minute. And I want to say that what happened inside and outside of the walls of that city is so horrific that... You know, you can't describe it too graphically with kids in the room. Famine set in, factions set in, murder set in, people eating their children set in. The Romans were capturing at a low number 500 people trying to escape the city every single day. And mind you, the siege started like, you know, 8068. I mean, it's, they were there a long time. And they would take all 500 of them every day and nail them to trees. Think about that for a minute. Thousands upon thousands of crucifixes surrounding the entirety of this city. The whole place smells like death. The birds are swirling and feasting from the whole region. The animals come out at night to eat. It is horrific. Flavius Josephus, who was a first century historian, I was going to bring his book and I realized I couldn't read it. My arm's not long enough, so I typed it up in big print. He lived through this. He was a uh, general in the resistance forces of the Jews. He fought the Romans as they were approaching the city. And like everyone else, he lost. They found him hiding in a well. They pulled him out. And because his troops had fought so valiantly, Vespasian, who later went back to Rome to become the emperor and left the battle for Jerusalem to his son Titus, Vespasian so admired the way that his troops fought that he spared his life. He took upon himself the name Flavius. That's a Roman name. And he wrote his accounts. He literally was the guy that became the go-between between between the Romans who had the place surrounded and are crucifying 500-plus people every single day 
and wanted to take the city. He, he tried to mediate an agreement between the Jews and the Romans, but like the heart of Pharaoh, the hearts of these men that Jesus placed eight prophetic woes upon were hard. He says this, it's just sort of a summary statement. He says, it is therefore impossible to go distinctly over every instance of these men's iniquity. I shall therefore speak my mind here at once, briefly, that neither did any other city ever suffer such miseries, nor did any age ever breed a generation more fruitful in wickedness than this was from the beginning of the world. What did Jesus say? He says, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And God's people were not spared it. They got some good advice, but many lived through it. And it wasn't seven years long. I say that respectfully, but I want you to think about it. He says, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved at all. But for the sake of the elect, those who didn't catch the memo, I guess, and who suffered and who starved and who met with the sword, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, I love this, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is. Do not believe him, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance, he's saying, I'm equipping you for this, this season of tribulation so that if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. They're just going to catch and crucify you. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. And Josephus talks about this. Over and over again, as this siege continues, as they're starving, as they're suffering, as they're being crucified 500 plus a day at a time, false messiahs rose up. As the Romans were breaching the city, a false messiah cried out and said, everybody needs to go to the temple courts, for the Lord will there give you a sign of your deliverance. And a whole host of people did. And the Romans came in every entrance and slaughtered every single one of them. Jesus says, look, when they say those things, do not believe them. Why, Lord? Because he says, for just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west. Have you ever seen that? Isn't that like the coolest thing? I remember I was in college at Florida State. i just throw that out there. Thank you. And I'm standing out in front of Landis Dorm, and I'd come to pick somebody up for a date, I think. And I, I looked up in the sky, and it was like one of those heat lightning deals where it just kind of like splinters and covers the whole sky. And I didn't know whether to fall on the ground, run, or what. I mean, it was just the most magnificent thing. It was one of those things that when it was happening, it was just hypnotic. I mean, you couldn't miss it. It just was traveling all over the sky. It was beautiful. I've never seen its equal. Never. You ever seen anything like that? How about birds? You know, when we go up to North Carolina in the summer, animals are the rare, you know, more than there are here. We have domesticated beasts here. They have actual animals who die. And, and you can see over the woods these birds, big vultures circling. Fifty of them, you know, I mean, lots. 
You can't mistake that. You see them from miles away. Just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. He's saying, guys, when I return, you're not going to need someone to tell you. You're going to know. It's going to be obvious. And it's not going to happen there. Then he makes what is, for many of us, the most confusing statement of all, but I want you to understand it because I think it's going to not be confusing, hopefully in about two minutes. He says, but immediately after the tribulations of those days, the sun will be darkened. Remember this now. What he's going to call to mind are things that are happening in the heavens. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and the sign of the Son of Man will appear, in in the actual Greek it says, in heaven, and then all of the tribes of the earth. What tribes? The twelve tribes that are scattered all over the world and had been by all of the persecutions of the Jews, who would gather three times a year at this temple to present before the Lord. They will mourn, for their nation is gone, their place of sacrifice is gone, their place of gathering is gone, the holy city, done, gone. They will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of sky with power and great glory. The reason that is so confusing, I think, to so many of us is because, you know, we hear that with the ear of a 21st century American evangelical Christian and not with the ear of a first-century Jew who was raised on the language of the prophets and who understood the nature of the literature, the nature of the language, and thus understood that everywhere else that language is applied in the Bible, that language is referring to the judgment of heaven that God brings upon an evil or wicked city or nation. How? Through invading armies. I'm going to give you two of three or four examples. Isaiah 13, verse 10, For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. And the sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. That sound familiar? Jesus is borrowing this language specifically, is He not? Well, what is God saying there, and what happened? He's speaking of the judgment against Babylon that he then destroyed through the Medes and their armies. When you read through the Old Testament, you're constantly seeing God raising up nations as instruments of destruction, even against his own people. He destroys Babylon. And Jesus borrows that language to speak of this city, Jerusalem. And his guys understood it because, I mean, they got all this. And we're a long way from it, so it helps to hear Isaiah 19, verse 1, the oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud. It's the image of God coming in the chariots of heaven in judgment. But he's not saying, look up in the clouds for the chariots of heaven. He's speaking of the judgment of heaven. It's apocalyptic poetic language. The Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at His presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. God is speaking against Egypt, and He destroyed it through the armies of the Assyrian Empire. 
the Lord is taking this same language and He's using this same language in the same fashion, and wouldn't that be what you would expect Him to do? He's saying, hey, there's judgment coming upon this city through the instrumentality of a foreign army. He will bring judgment, he's saying, but he will also bring grace. He goes on, he says, and he, the Son of Man, will send forth his angels. It just means his messengers. The word angels means messengers, and sometimes that's a heavenly messenger. Gabriel comes to announce the birth of Jesus to Mary, to speaks to Joseph. Sometimes it's you. That's part of the question we've got to deal with. It's part of where I'm going. He's sending forth his messengers. The word apostle means a sent one. And he did, and he does. He sends forth his messengers. He's carrying forward this poetic language with a great trumpet, and they will gather together as elect through the proclamation of his gospel. That's, that's the message from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. And now learn, he says, the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, guys... When you see all these things happening, worldwide evangelism, armies encircling the city, recognize that he or it is near. The destruction of the city is at hand when you see those things happen. It's right at the door. And then what does he say again? Because he bookends the whole section with these two statements. He says, truly, I say to you, This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So a generation is 40 years. He utters the statement roughly A.D. 36, and all these things take place by A.D. 70. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. It will happen just the way... I'm saying it will happen, and it did. It's kind of my point. So Jesus is asked, when is this, you know, when's the temple going to be dismantled? Or the disciples did, and now Jesus has answered that. But that's not all they asked. They asked about his second coming, didn't they? And look at how he changes his language, how he distances the two. Verse 36, he says, but of that day and hour, now what day? Because previously he's only referred to those days. Verse 19, woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Verse 24, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Verse 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and so forth. But now he doesn't speak of those days. Now he's talking about that day. But of that day and hour, no one knows, he says, not even the angels of heaven nor the sun but the Father alone, before He has clearly indicated when something is going to happen, now He's saying, I have no idea. Before He gave the definitive sign to look for, to know it's going to happen, and if you know the rest of the story, He just goes on to teach these parables now that basically have the bottom line message of, you just need to prepare and watch. You just need to be ready for it to happen all of the time. Don't wait for a sign. Just be ready now. Before he was talking about the destruction of the city, now he's talking about his second coming. He says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone, for the coming of the Son of Man. Please remember this for next week. The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. 
For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood. Until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. There will be a day when He comes of sudden, unexpected, and cataclysmic judgment. I think the book of Revelation refers in large part, not entirely. We still await a new heavens and a new earth. There is battling yet to be done. It's happening. That's the walk away for us today. Are we even aware of that? Are we awake to that? Do we even know that? Are we involved in that? But just like Jericho was Joshua's signature victory, so was 8070 for the Lord. He destroyed the temple, but what that temple stood for lives on, and it lives on in our homes, it lives on in our extended families, in our offices, schools, friends, clubs, ball teams. It lives on in my personal little world and in yours and in our city and in the big world in which we live. Most people really think that all you need to do to enjoy the favor of God and go to heaven and, you know, however you want to say it, is to be a good person. And the gospel of free grace says, now there are no good people except Christ. He's the one who kept the law, the rules, the regulations perfectly that none of us have ever or even could ever keep. We're too flawed, fatally. He did it for us in our place that God might accept His record instead of mine. And then He died the death that I deserve and suffered the punishment that should be mine on a cross. And all His disciples thought, well, I guess that's it then. Another false Messiah. And you know, because the Romans killed him. He hung on a tree, Moses says, bearing the curse of the Lord. It is the curse to hang on a tree. And Paul says he bore the curse for you and me. And he rose from the dead, you see. And he brought the judgment exactly as he said he would upon these guys in that temple. And like Joshua, who continued to battle until he took the entirety of the land, the Lord God is sending forth his messengers with his gospel to collect up his people all over the world. And you and I have the privilege of being a part of that. Christ gave his life to win the battle that is raging all around us. The battlefield is clearly set. The temple and all it stands for is over here. Jesus is over here. And the question for you and I is, where are we? Where are we? Because the flood will come someday when He returns. There is a Savior who can take away our sin and shelter us from the judgment of God. And the time to come to Him is now, and the time to tell other people about Him is now as well. So I hope that all sort of made sense and most of you stayed awake. And if you didn't, I, these lights are really bright, so unless you're in the first row, you know, I probably didn't see it unless your head went like this. And... But it's not an academic discussion. It's real. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for um, even the difficult words that are contained within your book. 
Lord, we thank you for the minds that you give us. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who is our teacher and had better be. We thank you for what the Spirit has shown the church for two millennia regarding passages of Scripture like this. And for those whose shoulders we get to stand upon, who, as Ryan said earlier, created the confessions and wrote them in their own blood sometimes, the confessions that we continue to profess. Lord, we praise You for what You do in the church, for the battle that You have won at the cross, and that someday You will consummate entirely. And Lord, I pray that You will open our eyes to the reality that we have the privilege of participating in it. Wake us up from materialism, from our pursuits of the American dream, from all of the things that would interfere to the struggle for souls, to the gathering of your elect all over the world, and send us forth as your angels, as your earthly messengers by the power of your Spirit, proclaiming a gospel of life and a liberty from a gospel of death. We pray these things for your glory and that it might be known and seen that all of heaven and earth and under the earth might bow the knee to the one who alone is worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.